1: to passing out, to accident. I mean, just, it is such a load of crap. And the number of times that he has delivered a load of crap, I have no reason to believe this latest load of crap is true.
2: All right. That's a a fair way to end it. And the good news about us being a little late in this show is that we have Ashley Banfield, and now her show starts. Ashley, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Dan. Great to have you with us tonight. It's Thursday, which I like to call, you know, Friday Eve. I have so much to tell you. If you were just watching Dan Abrams' show, uh, you know that I've been working on the Holloway story. Hold that thought for a moment because my lead story is actually a boatload of exclusive details on those Georgia escapees. The four fellas who just chiseled their way out of the second story window and then amscrayed. We have an exclusive source who's giving us a bunch of information um, as to what happened, what didn't happen, what the sheriff's not telling us. And we have a photo of a guy who showed up three weeks ago and parked in the employee lot in a blue Dodge Challenger and then cut his way through the fence and dropped a book bag. What do you know? Okay, so we've got some really cool information. We also have information that... Um, It was questionable. Did the inmates get out and get into that Challenger on Monday when they escaped? No. It turns out, no. And how do I know that? Because our source actually knows where they went. And it wasn't out to the parking lot. It was around the back of the jail. All sorts of stuff. Evidence dropped at the back of the jail. We know exactly where those four fellas made off to. Why weren't we told officially? Why did it take us to get a source to tell us this? That's a whole other show. But we also have an exclusive interview with the, um, the investigator who tracked down the guy on the top left of that quadrant, the accused murderer, the guy who allegedly killed his girlfriend with a shoelace. Uh, the guy who investigated it, tracked him down, put the cuffs on him, actually collared him, put the cuffs on him, is on the show tonight. He has a whole lot of information and some choice words. For the sheriff in this case, and how this whole thing ended up uh, breaking down. It's a bit shocking, not going to lie. Somebody was able to break into the jail three weeks ago, and then four fellas were able to break out of the jail on Monday. Okay, we're in day four of that manhunt. I got those exclusive details, the photo, and the interview coming up in a moment. And then... As I was talking with Dan Abrams about Vander Vandersloat, tonight you're going to hear his full confession. Last night, we only had the transcript, so you had to bear with me as I nearly barfed in my own mouth having to read his words, including like a thousand ums, ahs, and whatever else it takes for you to make up a story <laughs> while you're telling people live. So tonight you're going to hear him in his own words, top to bottom, of how he describes his hideous, uh, rapey behavior on the beach the night he says... He took a cinder block and bashed in Natalie's head. A convenient cinder block on a beach. You know where I'm going with this, right? And the reason I am so ticked off about it is because I, for one, am sick to death of hearing that cake hole spewing a bunch of lies. All he ever does is confess with a brand new story and a brand new set of details. So why should we believe this latest one was any different? I think he's pathological. I think he's a sociopath. And those kinds of people, I'm here to tell you, can pass lie detector tests. So when he was wired up to the lie detector and spewed this latest stream of garbage, he passed the lie detector test. Big whoop. It's why lie detectors aren't admissible in court. They don't always tell you exactly what the truth is, much like the rapey Joran Vanderslope. You're going to hear that, and you're going to also hear the list of all the other confessions that he's made. Over the years, and wait until you see them all strung together. You might feel very differently from what you heard yesterday. Um, and then, what happened? What on earth happened in the Delphi, Indiana case today? Richard Allen was finally in court, and for the first time, thank you Jesus, we had cameras in the courtroom in that case, so I was pretty excited. As they all came in, there's the judge, she's getting up on the bench, we're, we're expecting it all to start, we're gonna hear from Richard Allen, why isn't he in the courtroom? We're all thinking, right, where is he? This is crazy. What a bombshell she dropped. Except if you follow this case real carefully. You might have actually suspected something crazy was gonna happen. And that's something crazy happened. That's her right there telling you the crazy thing that happened in the courtroom today. And it has to do with his defense attorneys. Should I say former? There's your big hint. I'm going to tell you why those defense attorneys bailed out today. What it did to the case, what it did to Richard Allen, where he actually is right now, and what it did to the families. That's all coming up. First to the manhunt. Day four. Day four. One day for every man that has gone free in the Georgia manhunt. They got it at 3 a.m. Monday morning. They've been on the run ever since. Hopefully they're not coming to a town where you live. Because day four means they've had four days to get closer to you. We have these exclusive uh, details from the Bibb County Jail. You know, Sheriff David Davis was a little bit fuzzy on the facts when he first told us about what happened. He said in a press release, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. Quote, a Blue Dodge Challenger pulled up to the location and helped the inmates flee at 3 a.m. Monday. Well, that made me think that they got into that vehicle and took off and maybe made distance, right? Always the details matter when you're, you're planning the chase, right? Are they on wheels or are they on foot? Well, Sheriff made us feel like they were on wheels. I got a hint for you. In a moment, you're going to find out why that is just all crap. They were not. So they... He says that this challenger pulled up to the location and helped the inmates flee at 3 a.m. But then during the live press conference, he said this.
3: The car was in the parking lot and then it left. Then we see the inmates uh, escape. Uh, so we don't know if they got into that car, or maybe got into a different car.
1: Okay, all right, I'm a little more confused now. Don't know if they got in that car, okay. Well, did they or didn't they? Uh, we have learned exclusively from an inside source that those four inmates did not get into that Dodge Challenger. No, Surrey Bob, they did not. And the sheriff knew it all along because the sheriff had video. The inmates went around the back of the jail on foot. Let me repeat. We know full well they did not get into that blue Dodge Challenger. They went around the back of the jail on foot. Wow seen on video walking behind the prison we weren't told that because two and a half hours after they were walking around the back of that prison uh little kids were getting on school buses and parents were driving kids to school and nobody knew that story and we wouldn't know it for hours and hours and hours that's what i call a problem here's another big nugget that's gonna. okay first of all do you have whiskey (laughs) because if you don't find a tequila this one is gonna hurt because i just had to read it three times and even then i had to call and verify because i thought not a chance this is not true okay our inside source tells us this deputy working the night shift at the jail that night heard banging this is what the deputy logged you ready the deputy heard banging. Remember I told you last night they had a bunch of power tools and chiseled and they chiseled their way out and it would take a lot of noise to do that? The deputy logs that he heard banging, but he did not go and check the source of that noise because they were so short-staffed and he did not want to go alone. He feared for his safety to go and check the source of all the banging and the noise. Let that one sink in. I will let you take a drink. I will let you take another. And if you need a third, I am with you. Also, the night of the escape, that Blue Dodge Challenger uh, apparently was sitting in the employee parking lot for almost a full hour, just sitting there. I think that's weird, especially because it's 10 o'clock at night. It's just sitting there. Then the driver actually gets out. That to me would also be something that a guard looking at the outer perimeter of the jail or prison would actually take notice of. Apparently not. Driver gets out, goes to that fence line that you're seeing right there. See the, you can see it in your foreground, the chain linky fence. Driver goes to the fence line and cuts through the fence and two more fence lines. So cuts three. Fences Cuts through three perimeters. Driver of Blue Challenger. night of Escape. Sitting at 10 o'clock at night. Cuts through three fences. And then drops a book bag. Well, that was nice of him. I have strong sneaky suspicion here that there weren't books in there. But he dropped a book bag. I cannot give you the description of the fella that did that. I can't tell you the description of the guy that got out of the Challenger at 10 o'clock at night on the night of the escape, walked over and cut three holes through the fence, but I can give you a description of another fella that did something almost identical three weeks earlier. Not only can I give you the description, I can show you the fella. Are you ready? We have an exclusive photo tonight of a man who was clad all in black with a black mask, described as a black male... September 28th, there he is. Hello. Uh, He also cut through the fence in almost the exact same place. And he dropped off contraband. Word was yesterday, power tools in order to effectuate that kind of a breakout. Tools that make loud noises, the kinds that were heard on Monday night, that scared the guard. Too much to check. So that there fella was able to on Monday or on September 28th, he was able to cut through the fence and drop things off. Contraband, they call it. Three weeks later, the driver of the blue challenger was able to sit for the full hour at 10 o'clock at night in the employee parking lot, get out of the driver's seat, walk over to the same area of fence, cut through three fences and drop a book bag. Not with books. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Not with books. We announced last night that the reward for the capture of these four guys had jumped from two thousand, because I'm like two thousand, who is gonna say anything? It jumped from two thousand to seventy-three thousand. And then today we, we found a little nugget that we thought was pretty I think funny, but none of this is funny. So you break the seventy-three thousand dollars into seventeen thousand per guy. But then there's five thousand dollars left over. So how do they split up? Wait, if it's 17000 per guy, oh, look at the guy on the far right, Mr. Barnwell. He's 22000 so he's worth a little more to uh, whoever wants to turn these guys in. You know, Fournier, Stokes, and Anderson, you're not quite as valuable as your pal Barnwell. They want $22,000 for, for Barnwell, because it turns out he's being held for the U.S. Marshals as well. But FBI, U.S. Marshals, Crime stoppers they all chipped in to get the grand total to 73,000. But if you can only find one of them, do your best to go for Barnwell, because you'll get five extra thousand. The other three, not quite as valuable, even though Fournier, on the left there, is an accused murderer. With me now is DeAndre Hall. DeAndre was the investigator who tracked down and locked up that accused killer, Joey Fournier. He did it last year. Fournier is one of those escapees on the run tonight, Mr. Hall who tracked him and cuffed him, was born and raised in Macon, Georgia. He worked for the Bibb County Sheriff's Department for 13 years, but he is now running for sheriff, and he joins me now exclusively. Sir, thank you so much for for being here. Finding these escapees, I would think, is very personal for you, especially since you cuffed Fournier. Tell me a little bit about your mission and whether you think you're actually going to find them.
4: Absolutely. Um, Mr. Fournier, this case, I worked back in February of 2022. Um, the victim being Miss Sydney Berry. Um, in this particular case, uh, we was able to solve this case pretty quick and probably like a two day time span uh, with all the resources and stuff that we use. It's kind of unfortunate to know that he was able to freely just walk away. And it's even more unfortunate for the family. I'm um, I'm pretty sure they're still grieving, coping with the loss of Miss Sydney Berry. So for me, it's more so that this is a disservice to the family to know that he's gotten away freely without facing his consequences that he deserves to face for the murder that he was charged with. So hopefully he will be captured pretty soon. So, yeah.
1: Mr. Hall, I know you have some additional details um, about the night that the four of them broke out and, and went around back, um, back of the jail structure. What else did you learn about this?
4: Um, From my understanding, uh, when they left out of the jail, they went behind a building that was across from the jail and got undressed, possibly changed into clothes. From my understanding, there were clothes located on the ground behind a particular building.
1: Clothes or jumpsuits? Because the orange jumpsuits are very visible if they're on the run. Were the jumpsuits found behind uh, the building, behind the jail?
4: Um, I'm going to assume that it was the jumpsuits. I just, from my understanding, I was just told that the clothing were found. So I'm assuming they changed from the jumpsuits to other clothing.
1: So I know, listen, you have a dog in this fight in terms of the fact that you're running for sheriff. And I know you're very critical of the current sheriff. Um, I'm frustrated just as a layperson. I'm not running and I'm not a jailer, but I'm a a citizen who likes to stay safe. Uh, I don't understand how three weeks ago we could see a photo of a guy Uh, dressed all in black, cutting through three fences, uh, dropping off contraband only to find the same person or maybe someone similar did the same kind of pattern, you know, on on Monday and and allowed these guys to to chisel out and get, you know, get what they needed, dropping off a book bag and uh, getting through those fence holes. How on earth could that have happened? How on earth after the break in, could they have not been more careful about the break out?
4: Um, It just goes to show that the security of the uh, jail has been compromised. When you get to a point where it's one thing for people to break out of jail, but when you got people freely breaking into the jail, not once, but twice, I feel like that's a problem in itself. And it shows the incompetence of the leadership for you know the security of the jail, and for the for the staff, um, there should be more safety measures taken to protect those employees working in the jail. But at this point, it's kind of hard to say. But something clearly has to be done. It's vital at this point.
1: I'm also a little confused about why I haven't seen the same kind of response. As we saw with Danello Cavalcante in Pennsylvania, we saw helicopters and dogs. We saw U.S. Marshals everywhere. We saw them on foot, horseback. It was sort of like an APB. Now, he was a convicted murderer, but Fournier is an accused murderer. So we look at this timeline, escaping at 3.30. The staff realizes it two and a half later, two and a half hours later. The school district isn't notified for four and a half hours, and... We don't get a press release to the public for almost an hour later. And where is the all all hands on deck search? Why is it so different than what I would have thought, you know, would be pretty big since there's four of them?
4: From my own understanding, that was a search. I don't know to what extent the search was. But out of all of this, more so than anything, it should have been more transparency with letting the community know that these guys had uh, escaped in a timely manner. Because people had, like you said earlier, kids going to school, people were out going to work. Um, there was no video footage of these guys actually getting into a vehicle, so they could have been out on foot. And who's to say who they could have came in contact with? But for the safety of the community, the uh, public should very well have been notified sooner.
1: Feel like it. I also feel like we should have seen, you know, the the heavy presence of, of you know, of, of trackers and, and those who search and try to find um, escaped, you know, dangerous convicts or or, uh, escapees who are awaiting trial. Um, I can't thank you enough, Mr. Hall, for doing this. Uh, Stay in touch with us and keep us updated about any other information that you may hear about this. Thank you again. Thank you. DeAndre Hall joining us live tonight. Also, if you know anything about this, if you know any, I mean, no details too small. If you have any information about this, please call the Bibb County Sheriff's Office. Take a picture of your TV screen. This is hard to remember. 478 751-7500, and give them a call if you know anything. And before I go to break, I do want to tell you uh, a little something about a couple of true crime headlines. I'm going to start with this bonkers escape in Houston. There was this inmate who's, like, in a courtroom, and he's waiting to have his hearing. And it's not a one he's going to like, right? His bail's about to be revoked by a judge. And he took total advantage of a freak situation in the courtroom next door. This is the courtroom next door, right? Uh, while deputies in his courtroom rush into this courtroom uh, because they need to stop this fight that's about to break out, right? This, this lady, I'm going to explain what she's doing in a minute, but the inmate is being tried for domestic abuse, somehow gets out of his leg shackles, and he waltzes out of his courtroom and down the elevator and out of the courthouse onto the street scot-free. So the fight that you're seeing that happened in the courtroom next door that took all the attention away, and the bailiffs ran next door to, to deal with it. Um, it was actually pretty bad. The, the mother of a murdered teenage girl was up on the stand. If we roll that video again, you'll see her. She's up on the stand. Uh, she went after the confessed killer of her daughter after she got down from the stand. She had just given her victim's impact statement. And um, that's when absolute chaos, like hell, broke loose. Take a look. So again, all this is happening in the courtroom next door to the guy uh, who's being tried for domestic abuse. So he's 32-year-old Michael Combs. He's waiting patiently for his bail revocation hearing to happen. Uh, The deputies go flying into the courtroom next door to help out. Nobody notices that this guy's gone for 15 minutes. And he stayed gone for two whole days. But thankfully, he was caught this morning at a bus station. I guess he thought he was going to get far. He did not. I also have another update for you on the Brian Koberger case. Uh, It's not a huge one, but it is kind of weird. It's a rare point of agreement between prosecutors and defense attorneys on Koberger's team. Uh, This week, both of these parties got a protective order keeping Brian Koberger's medical records off limits to anybody other than, quote, defense counsel, investigators, and retained experts. And the big question for this is, why is that necessary? Medical records are already protected by federal law, HIPAA. Yours and mine and even Coburgers. they're all protected. So why did the attorneys think an additional court order was needed? We are going to dig into that one in the days ahead. In the meantime, coming up, Joran Vanderslope described in explicit detail how he bludgeoned Natalie Holloway to death on a beach in Aruba and then just pulled and dragged and carried her body into the sea. And if you were here with us last night, you heard some pretty good reasons why not everybody is convinced that that's true. And here's another reason. This guy has confessed before more than once More than twice, three times, four times. This guy's got more stories than Stephen King. We're going to run through his so-called confessions, and you're going to hear his latest one in his own voice, his voice on tape when we come back.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: So, I am pretty sick of Joran Vandersloed. I have been for 18 years, frankly. Um, but yesterday, we all learned he agreed to swear, whatever that means to him, under oath, what he did to Natalie Holloway back in 2005 in Aruba when he killed her. He admitted it. He just said he did it and he gave the details if you believe them. Yesterday, I read them because we only had the transcript. And it was closed to cameras. Today, though, authorities released his actual recording. So now we can hear in his actual voice him calmly and coolly describing what he did to Natalie Holloway on a beach that night in Aruba. Here it is.
3: Plus, uh, she, she asked to go back to her hotel, but I was just trying to get dropped off a little bit uh, further away from her hotel so we could uh, walk back to her hotel and I might still get a chance to, to be with her. That's what I was hoping for. Okay. So what happens? Um, yeah, Deepak drops me off at a, at a place, uh, a little right of the, of the Marriott hotel known as the Fisherman's huts, um, this place, uh, is not so far from, you know, the next hotel is the Marriott and the next hotel after that is, is another Marriott, uh, which is a timeshare. And then it's the, the Holiday Inn. well, we we walk along the beach. Um, uh, um, do Deepak and Satish get out? Come with
4: you. Though? What what happens? Uh, uh, Deep
3: Deepak and Satish leave. Uh, they uh, they leave. Uh, they go back to their home. I assume they go back to their home. Um, they get in their car and they leave. Uh, I'm actually with uh, I'm actually with uh, with Natalie walking along the beach. Uh, I find a space uh, before we get to the before we get to the Marriott hotel where I lay her down we lay down together in the sand and uh, we start kissing each other I start I get her to kiss me again we start kissing each other and uh, I start feeling her up again and she tells me no she tells me she doesn't want me to, to feel her up uh, I insist I keep feeling her up either way um, and, uh, she knees me, uh, she ends up kneeing me in the crotch. Uh, when she knees me in the crotch, uh, I get up, uh, on the beach and I kick her extremely hard in, in the face. Um, yeah, she's laying down, uh, unconscious, possibly even, uh, even dead, but definitely unconscious. And, uh, I see, uh. Right next to her, there's a there's a huge uh, cinder block laying on the beach.
2: When you say cinder block, uh,
4: looking at the walls of this uh, place, is it like those?
3: The exact same cinder blocks. I see a, little, a huge cinder block laying on the on the beach. Uh, I take this and uh, yeah, I, I I smash her head in with it completely. Uh, yeah, her face basically, you know. Uh, Collapses in even though it's dark. I can see her faces collapsed in um, Afterwards, I don't exactly know uh, what uh, you know I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what to do uh, and I um, <clears throat> I decide to to take her and uh, uh, To put her into the ocean so I grab her and I I half uh half pool and half walk with her into the ocean. Um, I uh I push her off uh I walk up uh up to about my knees into the ocean and I push her off into into the into the into the sea. Um, and uh, yeah, after that, I, I get out, I, I walk home.
1: He's such a rapey murderer. And the reason I have all this disdain that is literally pouring out of my every, you know, <laughs> every pore <laughs> is because I've been through this rodeo for 18 years with this jack-off, okay? Yeah, yeah, it is like, fifth time he's told some garbage story. Let me take you through what I mean. 2008, he talked to a Dutch crime reporter's associate. That crime reporter was Peter Devries, who actually wired up the car uh, that Joran got into, and then, like, recorded this interview. It's, it's in Dutch, but I just want you to see it and hear, like, a little snippet of it, and then I'm going to tell you what he said. Take a look. <laughs> okay rather than you having to sit through all of that dutch i'm going to tell you what what basically he said she was thrown into the sea yes she was the gist of it is he says holloway died in his arms after having sex how romantic and then she uh she was shaking and lost consciousness well that doesn't make any sense at all right that order um and then he called a friend with a boat to help dump her body into the sea. But then later he decided to recant on a Dutch TV show saying, quote, this is what he wanted to hear. So I told him what he wanted to hear. All right. So then in 2008, that would be uh, same year, he told Greta van Sustren that he sold Natalie Holloway into sexual slavery. That's a big departure. And then two years later, in February of 2010, he gave another confession to a Dutch TV station. He said that he and a buddy took Holloway to a friend's house. They drank whiskey, did coke. She got up to dance on the balcony. And when he went to dance with her, she fell to her death. Very convenient. Very different. Another confession, two years... Oh, same year. 2010. He was busy. 2010. Uh... This was the whole extortion case to Beth Holloway's attorney. Uh, give me $250,000. I'll take you to the body. And what he said was, uh, we were at the beach and, uh, Natalie wanted to leave. I didn't want to leave. Uh, she refused. So I threw her and I hit her and she hit her head and she died. And then I brought her body to a house near the Aruba racket club that was under construction. And I put her into freshly poured foundation. But the problem is that building was not yet under construction. So another lie. And Beth Holloway gave a down payment of $25,000 for that. And that's what Ann has now um, confessed to in the wire fraud. And uh, the case that basically got him 20 years, you know to serve concurrent. Problem is he cannot be charged with murder. Can't be charged in Aruba because the statute of limitations is over. And he can't be charged here in the U.S. either because he's not an American citizen. Even though he killed an American citizen, he killed an American citizen not on U.S. uh, territory. Very, very frustrating. He kind of got away with it. But he's going back to Peru and he'll have to serve out until, let's see, 2045 if he makes it. Still to come, a courtroom bombshell today that floored all of us. The case of a man charged with the cold-blooded murder of two eighth-grade girls in Delphi, Indiana. Defense blown to smithereens. Judge gets up on the bench and then basically just, well, let out a bombshell. Is this case going to get back on track? What did she do? What happened? We were in the courtroom. We are live there next.
5: That's NYX.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X.com.
1: I kind of thought today was going to be huge in the case against Richard Allen. It's the first time we're going to have cameras in his courtroom. He's the guy who's charged with the Delphi, Indiana murders of Libby German and Abby Williams. So here I was thinking, wow, first time we're going to get cameras in the court. We had the cameras and we watched as the judge got up on the bench and it was a big deal, right? All rise. Oh, this is great. It's getting going. We're going to see where's Richard Allen. What's going on? What on earth is this judge about to say? Well, I will let you hear it for yourself. Take a listen.
6: We've had an unexpected turn of events, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Earlier this afternoon, the defense attorneys have withdrawn their representation of Mr. Allen. Mr. Baldwin made an oral motion to withdraw. I granted that oral motion to withdraw, and Mr. Rosie will be submitting a written motion to withdraw, I'm assuming within the next couple of days. Um, They have confirmed with the court. Uh, Mr. Allen's uh, financial situation remains static, meaning he is continuing to be entitled to a- appointed counsel.
1: And then it turned out, because he didn't have a lawyer in the room, back to jail. No hearing today. And I kept thinking, does this have anything to do with that whole story earlier, like a week ago, about a really ugly leak of crime scene photos that Kind of connected back to the defense attorney. Well, it turns out maybe. News Nation's Laura Engel was there in the courtroom. She is live with me now. What, I, I hate to say we sent you down there uh, because uh, you were supposed to be doing this whole report on what happened in the courtroom today. And now you're telling me why you're not reporting on the the actual hearing. So, So fill me in.
6: Well, I can definitely tell you what happened in the courtroom because we were there for all of this, and you're right. We did not see the defendant come, but what happened was was this huge delay. We were all in the courtroom. There wasn't an empty seat. All of the family members for Abby and Libby on one side and then the wife and mother of Richard Allen on the other side. And then the minutes started ticking away, and we were like, what is going on? The defense counsel came out and talked to them, brought them out to the hallway and we never saw them again and the judge came out and made that stunning announcement and while it wasn't said in court that it was about those leaked crime photos um, we can presume that it is and we know that that there's been a lot of behind the scenes about that because that judge was supposed to talk to those defense attorneys Um, somebody within their office a former employee we've been told uh, got their hands on a some copies of these crime scene photos took photos of the photos and disseminated them and that is obviously just a huge breach of trust so that was going to be the issue today but now we are back to square one no defense for richard allen as of right now and we wait he will be back in court on october 31st for the next round ashley
1: okay i've got you penciled in you're gonna be on the show again that night laura engel thank you appreciate (laughs) it thanks So a little while ago, I actually had a conversation with uh, two people, Anya Kane and Kevin Greenlee. They're a husband and wife team. They co-host a podcast called The Murder Sheet, and they are, in this case, super deep. Uh, Journalist and attorney, they have helped to uncover a lot of details, generate some serious leads in the case. They also got their hands on the leaked photos, the crime scene photos that created a big hullabaloo. And, well, I talked with them earlier today. Anya, that was such a, a surprise um, in, the, in the hearing today. I don't know that anyone really expected it. I don't know if you expected it, but do we think that what happened today was because of the photo leak um, that, that you were part of? You, the photos were leaked to you.
7: Yes, I think to start off with, we definitely think what happened today occurred due to the leak and that these were some of the repercussions or aftershocks of set leak. And as for whether we were surprised, I think we both thought that there was a pretty decent likelihood that the defense attorneys might be removed from the case, that that could be a consequence of the leak. But I don't think either of us expected that they would be withdrawing themselves.
1: And I'm so fascinated about the photos uh, themselves, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But Kevin, first to the to the process and and. How this happened, like, first and foremost, uh, this was a a gagged case. There are plenty of pieces of evidence that we're not supposed to know anything about. And yet, through a bizarre chain, the pictures came into your possession, you and Anya's possession. How did that happen?
2: Uh, We were contacted by a source that we talked to before, and he sent us these images. And after we talked about it with him, he was... Pretty shaken about it. He was a little bit stunned that he had these. This is a father. He didn't know what to do. And as we talked about it and the gravity of the situation hit him, he said that we really should do the right thing, which to his mind was to go to law enforcement and give them full information about exactly where he got these images.
1: And then were you able to tell law enforcement where your source got? his or her hands on uh, on the photos?
7: Yes, our source provided us with screenshots of his interactions with the person who had given him the photos, and that revealed quite a lot. We reviewed it, and he basically gave that to us on the condition that we would take it to law enforcement. So when we reviewed it, um, looking through it ourselves, we realized that Um, There was essentially a middleman between our source and the original leaker, and that the original leaker was a member, uh, a former employee of uh, attorney Andy Baldwin's uh, law firm and a close personal friend of Andy Baldwin. So that was where we sort of pieced together what had happened.
1: And why I pieced together that I figured today happened because of of that. I mean, with that direct sort of chain link uh, all the way back to the defense attorney, it made me wonder, well, what's this defense attorney going to say in court uh, about that? So, Kevin, I know all responsible news organizations have to really measure the journalism versus um, the impact on a process. And clearly you... Both have decided that the murder sheet wasn't going to put those photos out there. Kudos to you. Um, we're not going to either. And I don't know how far, Kevin, you're prepared to go to describe what it was you saw. What, what can you tell us about those pictures that you saw uh, that were leaked from the case?
2: I said they, they were crime scene photos, and they were graphic. They were disturbing, and just looking at them, it was obvious that they were authentic. And uh, beyond that, I say just leave it to the imagination. They were very disturbing images.
1: I'll press only slightly here, um, and that is: were the were the children's bodies in those photos um, all or part part thereof? Um, I think we're going to probably decline to speak more on it, just out of
7: respect for the families. Um, but I can tell you, I, I wish I hadn't seen these images. No one should see them except for the jury ultimately the experts and the defense and prosecution. These were images that were never meant to be shared, um, especially before a trial. They I are incendiary.
1: Kevin, can you um, extrapolate from what you saw? Do you think it may have been an effort uh, on behalf of the defense or someone who supports the defense, might not have been the law office, do you think it might have been an effort to promulgate this theory that, um, that you know arose fairly recently, that it, this was the odinistic cult, ritualistic sacrifice of children, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Do you think this was an effort to poison the jury, um, that that, in fact, was their theory?
2: Uh, I'll certainly answer that. But before I do, I want to stress that we have not seen nor are we aware of any evidence that directly ties attorney Andrew Baldwin to this leak as far as we know it was just his friend who was responsible for this but certainly from the text communications and the screenshots we saw of the communication of the middleman with our source it seems a pretty clear that his motivation for sharing these images was he thought it would be helpful to the defense that he believed that what was in these images would somehow support their theory of the case.
1: Well, listen, I can't thank uh, both of you enough for coming on the program and giving some clarity to this very unusual bombshell today. Um, Anya Kane, Kevin Greenlee, your podcast is the Murder Sheet. Uh, it's it's great listening. Thanks thanks to you both for doing this. Thanks for
7: having thank you. Us.
1: And still to come, the man accused of orchestrating the murder of Tupac Shakur still hasn't been arraigned. And it's been like three weeks since his arrest. Today, a judge put it off again uh, because Dwayne keefe Davis still doesn't have a lawyer. But the strange part is the person in the courtroom who asked for the delay was keefe lawyer. I'm confused, too. Everybody is. We're going to try to sort it out next. So there was another bizarre day in court for the guy who has finally been charged in the murder of Tupac. That was back in 1996, in case you're keeping score. Uh, It is an already overdue arraignment of the guy, Keefe D., Dwayne Keefe D. Davis. This thing has now been delayed for another two weeks, and here's the reason. It's weird. Nobody knows if he has a lawyer. He's been arrested for three weeks, and we still don't know if he has a lawyer. He had a lawyer in court today beside him. And it's actually a really well known Las Vegas defense attorney, uh, storied kind of family. His name's Ross Goodman. But then, like, asked point blank by the judge whether Ross is KPD's attorney of record, uh, the answer was I am not going to confirm that today. <laughs> It's not like Ross Goodman doesn't know his way around the Las Vegas courtroom because he is the son of two Las Vegas mayors. Carolyn Goodman, who's the current mayor, and Oscar Goodman, the mayor before that. Oscar was a Las Vegas legend. Lawyer himself represented like big time mob figures, including Anthony, Tony, and. Spilatro, I think you could pronounce it. He was famously played by Joe, Joe Pesci in the movie Casino. Um, outside the courtroom, Oscar was best known for hitting the town with like a martini in his hand and a showgirl on each arm. So I don't even know what to tell you. I don't know who's going to show up as Dwayne Keefe D's lawyer, but I hope they have a martini and a showgirl on each arm because this case, watch this space. FOMO's up next.